We have been, if you're uh, new with us, or maybe have forgotten. It could happen, right? Over the past several weeks, talking about our, our sort of uh, mission statement here, blessed to be a blessing. And we've been defining that a little bit and sort of putting some framework and some definition to what that looks like. We talked about being blessed. And then last week, we began talking a little bit about being a blessing and, and what that means to be a blessing. And if you will recall, those that were here, <clears throat> I defined being a blessing as the call of God to exhibit self-sacrificial character as modeled by Jesus to all people at all times. That's sort of the broader definition. And then we have uh, put application to that in our context here in uh, really three categories. Loving our neighbors. And we talked about loving our neighbors last week. And, and I said again that that is a biblical directive. That when Jesus summed up the commandments and He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, that the reason He connected those two is that you really can't love the Lord God with all your heart unless you love your neighbor. And loving your neighbor is uh, a, a commandment. It's a directive. Uh, it's part of what we are called to do and be as Christians. Uh, the other thing we talked about is that uh, as much as I think most of us get that, it's not always easy, is it? It's not always easy to love. Sometimes um, y- you might not agree with your neighbor. You might have uh, y- you know, different convictions, different uh, morals or beliefs than your neighbor. Uh, and uh, yet I believe Scripture is clear that we are to look beyond those things and love our neighbor regardless. And sometimes... Uh, we might find out that the neighbor that's the hardest to love is the one that God's really seeming to focus us in on. So loving our neighbor is uh, an important aspect of being a blessing, and it's an important part of who we are as a church here. Today we're going to look at the second definition, caring for those in need. So why don't we pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. Jesus, we, we, we really do want to be a blessing. Lord. We want to bless our community We want to serve those people around us. We want to show them uh, the love of Jesus in a self-sacrificial way uh, as often as we can, wherever we can, whoever we can. So would you just put that conviction in our hearts and give us wisdom and guidance and direction as to how we might do that. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, I think you guys have probably noticed this when you... The environment you're raised in, when you grow up and and even uh, what you're taught... And sort of what what you're, you're uh, you know caught not taught what happens around you those things influence your life and they influence everything they, they, you know sort of sociologically they influence us and philosophically politically but also religiously also in terms of our spiritual beliefs whenever you came into relationship with God whether you, if you grew up in a Christian home or as a teenager at some point you connected with the Lord and started attending church, whatever you were taught is usually what you end up believing, right? That's kind of, so you, you, you have convictions and a, and a persuasion based on what you've heard and what you've learned. Now at some point, most of us, in a good way, will begin to question some of those things. And, and we realize, oh, with, even within Christianity, not everybody believes exactly the same and so we start to really evaluate, what do I really believe? And I bring that up to say this, that I was raised in the vineyard. I've been in a vineyard church for 40 years. 
You can do the math. <laughs> I was younger then. And um, uh, I have been, so, so in the Vineyard Church, from day one, we were taught that the gospel is inseparable from caring for the poor. So a lot of people that were outside of the Vineyard Movement heard about it because of worship, maybe because of healing, gifts of the Spirit. But in a Vineyard Church, uh, it was really clear that that was as important as anything else that we did. And we were taught from, from the earliest, earliest, you know, when you got involved in our church, you cared for the poor. That's just simply what we did. So that's been a conviction of mine my whole life, really, my whole Christian life, uh, is that that's what we do. That's who we are. Recently, though, you know, in the last 20 years, and then maybe 10 years and 5 years, and, and more and more, the further I go down this thing, I, I have broadened my horizons a little bit. I'm reading other people, listening to other people, exposing myself to, uh, you know, different theological perspectives outside of the Vineyard Movement. And the more I do that, the more convinced I am that that's true. That it's not just a vineyard thing. That if you read the Bible through any lens, I don't see how you can come away without believing that the gospel is really inseparable from caring for the poor. Uh, this young man named David Platt. Platt is a well-known pastor and author recent years, just a few years ago, three or four years ago maybe, wrote a book called Radical. Anybody read Radical? I know you've read it. Uh, nobody else. I would encourage you, Radical, the, the subtext or subtitle of it is Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. And Platt really uh, contrasts some of what we believe as Americans and that we've sort of combined with our Christianity a little bit and with what the Bible really teaches. And he says the Bible informs us and compels us to care for the poor, to love the outcast, to serve the needy. Not only Platt, but there's, there's a number of other voices. Uh, I also really appreciate uh, Richard Stern's book. Richard Stern's is the CEO of World Vision, and his book, The Whole in Our Gospel, uh, is very similar in, in nature, talking about how maybe, maybe, maybe in American Christianity we have overlooked a little bit uh, the, the mandate in Scripture to care for the poor. And then you look at the lives of people that we tend to venerate, Mother Teresa, certainly, uh, Henry Nowen is a personal hero of mine. These are people that really gave their lives to caring for those in need. And again, I think you come away with the, with the conviction in your heart that you, you cannot disassociate following Jesus, walking in faith, living out uh, a Christian life, and not caring for the poor. I want to read a, a fairly lengthy text this morning to illustrate that. Um, and it's Matthew 25. It's one you're very, very familiar with, but I, but I want to read it uh, to make the point anyway. When the Son of Man comes, and Jesus is teaching here, in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on, the glo- on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He'll put the sheep on His left, on His right, and the goats on His left. And the king, will, oh, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. 
I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. And I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It's a sobering text. Um, uh, it, it doesn't stand alone uh, in terms of the scriptural mandate to care for those in need. There are over 400 passages, uh, some 3,000 distinct verses in Scripture dealing with poverty, greed, money, and the responsibility of those in the kingdom of God to care for others. And to give you an example, and I'm going to use an illustration that I brought up last week and further it a little bit just to make a point clear here, that I, I believe, by and large, not, not completely, but by and large in the church in America today, we have misprioritized things. So last week I, and it, it wasn't in my notes, it just sort of popped out, but I talked about baking a wedding cake or not baking a wedding cake for a homosexual couple. And um, I believe if you read, Christ, if you follow Christian websites, whatever, you read things happening in the church today, homosexuality has been a huge issue in the last 10 years in the church. It's, it's led to all kinds of discussion and, and, and frankly, over the last 10 years, division in a number of denominational groups, including our friends of the ELCA E.C. Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, who we are, you know, meeting in Christ the King's building. They are ELCA, and there's a division that came in their denomination and others. And even in the Vineyard Movement, there has been some division, although not to that extent, over this issue in the last years. It's been a very hot-button issue. So the reason I bring that up is this. 3,000 distinct verses on caring for the poor in Scripture. How many do you think there are dealing with homosexuality? Six, maybe. Six. And I'm not saying that just the number of verses really makes something weightier or not weightier, but I would say this, that if you read the overall context of Scripture and say, what are the things that Scripture seems to prioritize, that, that would tend to, to sort of lean one way. And yet, how visible, how important, how much do you read about care for the poor in some of those same Christian uh, publications, 
from day to day. How big of an issue is that in the church today uh, to care for the poor? Here's the irony of that illustration, is that the uh, perspective on homosexuality stems from a passage in Genesis 19, where in Sodom some people were behaving inappropriately and God passed judgment on them, right? Uh, You can read that later. I'm not going to go into it all. What I am going to share is this, that... um, in the book of Ezekiel, God is speaking to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel, and he says this, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Going back to Genesis. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. I have a, I have a theological uh, hypothesis. So that I've not... This is just my guess, my thinking, but this is what I think. I I believe this, that when a person, a church, a people becomes arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned and turns their focus and heart inward, that other sin follows. And when a person, a church, or a people turns their heart outwards and becomes self-sacrificial like Jesus and begins to serve other people, that other sin diminishes and falls away. That's just my hypothesis but I'm right. And I'm not saying by any means homosexuality is not an issue. It is an issue. And it's a complex issue that we need to think about in the life of the church today. Um, But I would also say this, as followers of Jesus, I think it behooves us to look at the life of Jesus and how He prioritized time, energy, and resource to caring for people in need around Him. And in in the context of this congregation and who we are as a people, I would say this. um, When when we think about being a blessing, if you're part of this church and, and you don't have a concern for or want to be involved in caring for the poor, sooner or later it's going to get uncomfortable. Because quite honestly, that's just what we do. That's who we are. And it is ingrained in our DNA. It's part of who we have always been from the very beginning. When we planted this church 20 years ago, uh, we were, you know, I mean, a church plant. We were brand new. And I knew that we needed to begin uh, a a food pantry and and a ministry caring for the poor. So, my daughter Jordan was about 12 or 13 years old at the time, and she decided she was going to take it on. It was going to be her project, and she was going to start this food pantry. And so she thought, well, we need donations. We need food to give people. So this is just dating us all a little bit, but she gets the yellow pages out, and she's looking in the yellow pages. And she's looking under S, and Donna goes, what are you looking under S for? And she goes, for soap. I'm trying to find people that will give us soap so we can give soap to people. And that's sort of how we got started. Um... Before very many other ministries were established here, we established our food pantry. And I, and I want to say this, that not only was it one of the first things we did, it's been one of the most consistent ministries that we have done over the years. In 20 years, a lot of things have come and gone. A lot of ministries have come and gone, and, and, and that's, to be honest, just the way it is. You know? um, but that has never come and gone. 
in, uh, in our best times, you know, as, as a, a fairly uh, large congregation with a lot of resource, and as a smaller congregation in our worst times, at the lowest point of this church, we never stop caring for the needy in our community, ever. And we never will. We never will. There's probably a couple people here today who will remember standing in a circle in the Winco parking lot holding hands and praying. Uh, The first year we did our Thanksgiving outreach, Winco used to do, I don't know if they still do or not, we've changed our system a little bit, but they would sell prepackaged Thanksgiving dinners all together in a box and we just bought those and then we had two or three apartment complexes in the community that we had uh, identified as being low-income apartment complexes, and we went and distributed those boxes to people in those homes that, that year. I remember that specifically for this reason, that there was a young man uh, who was Latin American living in one of those apartments, and when we spoke with him, and I can't remember if his aunt or his grandmother or somebody had signed up for the box or whatever, but he was there as a teenager and, and obviously a recent immigrant to this country because I said, we have your Thanksgiving box, and his response was, what's Thanksgiving? So he was new to this country. This summer, Kevin mentioned 1,000 hours. During 1,000 hours, uh, we will serve uh, a, a, hopefully a broad swath of people in our community. Uh, we have connected with some of the schools, and we'll work in schools. We will work just in our, for our neighbors and, and people around us. But certainly we will include in that caring for the poor. Every year we do a school supply drive that Emma Shane McConnell leads. Uh, we do backpacks and school supplies for, for underprivileged kids in the area. We'll do that. That'll be incorporated into 1,000 Hours, as well as our free garage sale that we do every year and a barbecue and some other things uh, along that line in addition to our normal giveaways on Thursdays. So um, that's just a little plug there. Uh, Kevin mentioned earlier, too, you know, if you want to get involved... We, we have a lot of those hours already filled, but we're, people have come up recently and said, hey, I've got an idea. Could we do this or that? And I've said, sure, let's do it. So we're I'm coming apart here. There we go. Uh, we're, so we're adding other projects throughout that time uh, as, as ways to, to serve people. I'm going to look at one last verse this morning before we, before we wrap up. Uh, dealing with this issue, you guys will be familiar with this one as well. This is the prophet Micah. Uh, Micah says, he has shown you, O mortal. I love that. Uh, most of your Bibles, unless you have a newer edition of the NIV, say, O man. And the, just for the record, the, the Hebrew word there is Adam, which translates man, but clearly the author was including people of both gender. So the NIV has switched that. Uh, it couldn't have just done O people, O person, O mortal. So if you're mortal and you're following God, I think you're included. God has shown you what's good. And then he asks a question. And he poses it to Israel as a question because he wants them to think about it. What does the Lord require of you? And it's an interesting question because there's so much that God does for us and God gives us. And we talk a lot about that here. It's important. There are not a lot of things that God requires. But this is what Micah says God requires of us. He answers his own question. I love that. I would answer all my own questions if I could. Just To act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. 
Um, what does God require of you? I, you know, let me just say, we're not talking about, lest I stir up any further controversy, a gospel of works, a gospel of self-righteousness, or you have to earn your way into anything. We're saved by grace through faith, the free gift of God. Okay, But if you're among God's people, then there are requirements. Okay, So that's the differentiation there. And those requirements include acting justly, living your life with a view towards justice. I'm going to live my life with a view towards justice. I'm going to promote justice, and I am going to confront injustice when I see it. And I say that in the context of of this topic uh, to say this, that it's, it's fairly easy when you stand on this side of the poverty line to become critical and judgmental of those on the other side and point a finger and say, why don't you just get a job? But when we do that without considering the injustices that might have been involved leading up to the point that has led that person to where they are today, we've really overlooked uh, just a, a huge understanding of the culture that we live in. I'm reading an amazing, just fascinating book right now called Hillbilly Elegy. Anybody heard that or read that at all? It's, um, it's a fairly new book last year written by a man who is a graduate of Yale Law School, incredibly bright, gifted young man who grew up, grew up in the Appalachian Mountain region of the United States. And he talks about white poverty in this nation and and some of the injustices and the cultural oversights. Uh, and I think we just don't get it sometimes. And, I've, and I know this because I've walked with people through some of those things. Why don't you just get a job? Well, I, I need an ID to get a job, but I, I don't have, I got to have a way to get to the DMV, and I, got, I don't have my birth certificate because I don't know where my parents are, and I don't have the money to get there. And then once we get through all that process and you get the IT, think about this for a minute. You then have to have somebody willing to give you a job. Any of you who have management responsibilities, hiring responsibilities, you're entrepreneurial, let me ask you this question. Do you have certain criteria you're looking for when you hire somebody? Of course you do. And sometimes there might not be somebody willing to offer a job to a particular person because of their lack of qualification. All I'm saying is the issue is complex. It's a complex issue. And Micah's requirement from God for us is that we look at injustice and begin to confront it and walk out our lives with a view towards justice. The second thing he says is that we are to love mercy. And I, I, I love this as well because certainly mercy involves forgiveness and the exchange of forgiveness in our lives. And I think that's crucial. But beyond forgiveness, I believe um, mercy involves being compassionate towards people in general. And it's not simply that we are to be merciful, it's that we are to love mercy. We're to love being merciful. We're to say, this is the thing I love to do. I, I love to be compassionate and, and, and try to help people that 
might not otherwise receive help. That's what I want my life to be about. And then the last thing he says is that we are to also walk humbly with our God. And let me just, I just encourage you to do a little study, a little word study on humility. Because if you're humble, that means you're not judgmental. If you're humble, it means you're not self-righteous. If you're humble, it means you're not pointing the finger at other people. That's what humility is all about. And these are the things that God says are required of you, O mortal, that's following after God. And again, it's not, it's not a self-righteous thing. It's not a works thing. It's a thing that says, if I'm following after God, this is the kind of person I want to be. And I, I believe with all my heart, and, and for us as a people here, that is inseparable from the gospel. That there's really no way we can say I'm following Jesus if I don't have a heart to care for the poor. So let's go ahead and stand.